Part Two, Chapter Seventeen of *The Lonely Warrior* by Claude C. Washburn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It was afternoon on the last day of December when Stacy arrived at the little station of Pickens, North Carolina. His face had a sunken, ravaged look, and grime from the repulsively dirty train made its underlying pallor ghastly. But Stacy was not really in any such abject condition as he appeared to be. He was worn out, beaten back at every point, but something in him still hung on. His eyes were tired, but alive. In the train, which was crowded, as only a branch-line train of the Southern Railway can be crowded, with commercial travellers and with slovenly mothers, publicly nursing crying children, much too old to be nursed either publicly or privately, he had listened with even a little amusement to talk of how much better the service would be as soon as the government turned the road back to the company. And his will to get away by himself, out of touch with men and women, was strong and intense, sustaining him. He was not repelled by the sordid ugliness of the station and the glimpse of Main Street, but felt rather an unemotional sense of homecoming which any native of Pickens would have attributed to the fact that Stacy's mother's people, though now all dead or widely scattered, had been the Pickens Barclays, but which more likely arose in Stacy because the end of his quest was in sight. Anyway, here came old Elijah, grinning broadly, hat in hand, his fringe of white hair blowing about his nearly bald black head. He shook Stacy's hand vigorously. "'I sure almost thought you wasn't on that there train, Mr. Stacy,' he declared. "'There didn't seem nothing but babies.' And he carried Stacy's bag across the platform to a buggy. "'Hello,' said Stacy. "'You're driving Duke. What will Mr. Carroll say to that, Elijah?' "'Well, Mr. Stacy, sir, I just had to get you home somehow. These here Fords at the garage, just as like as not, they get stuck on the Meldron Road. I wouldn't have drove Duke, except for that. It's been raining a powerful lot. Haven't they mended that road yet? Stacy inquired, getting into the buggy. No, sir, not yet. You stop that, Duke, sir, he called to the horse, who, impatient of the shafts, was curvetting sideways down the street. Two or three people came up to the buggy and shook Stacy's hand and he replied to their greetings as heartily as he could. But he was eager to be rid of them, and felt relief when presently the town was left behind, and the buggy was ploughing through the waste of red mud known as the Meldron Road. He lit a cigarette and leaned back in the seat, drawing in deep breaths of the damp chilly air, and letting Elijah's words run on unchecked and unheeded. The landscape was a sweet and pleasant one, even now in winter, when the oaks and the poplars were bare of leaves. The rolling brick-coloured fields, planted with corn, were interspersed with patches of woods, where hills rose, blue with spruce and dark green with white pine. Beyond were the low friendly mountains. Log cabins were scattered about here and there, with pigs, dogs, and ragged children playing indiscriminately before them. All the people Stacy met or passed on the road raised their hats gravely, and Stacy raised his in return. 
he was enough of this country and also sufficiently intelligent to have no sentimental northern fancies about its romantic aristocracy he had no more illusions about the people of pickens than about the people of vernon if the latter were vulgar the former were bigoted their greed took on gigantic forms here it revealed itself in petty ways here as there he thought it was the one permanent human instinct he did not know what labor conditions were now at the knitting mills he knew what they had been six years ago the last time he had been down and he was skeptical of any change yet the sight of people here bothered him less than in vernon it seemed that he thought idly was because here the inhabitants were more a part of their country stood out less blatantly against the landscape blended with it or almost not because they and it were picturesque but because they had belonged to their country for many generations whereas in vernon nobody had been moulded by continuous residence into harmony with anything and stacy reflected that only in rural new england and the south did you get this impression of harmony between landscape and people as though they had mutually made one another really they were at bottom very alike rural new england and the south though each would have been shocked at the idea each with a continuous past from which it had sprung to which it belonged a tight narrow little past but authentic stacy was roused from meditation by a sense that elijah had been saying the same words a great many times and that the words were a question how's that elijah he asked i was just saying mr stacy as how i reckoned you'd be wantin some colored girl to cook for you and make your bed no said stacy calmly i don't want anyone you'll do that elijah the old man grew melancholy sure mr stacy if you say so he replied sadly i'll walk myself to the bone for you but i just don't know if i positively got the time to do everything jes right i got a powerful lot to do mr stacy what is it elijah well i got to look after duke sir and then there's all that big place to see to a couple of men workin on it aren't there yes sir but that's just it they don't work lessen i stands over them all the time they probably don't work if you do i don't want a maid elijah you can hire a woman to come in and clean for a couple of hours in the morning but i don't want to see her yes sir said the negro in a tone of aggrieved resignation but he got over it almost at once and was presently babbling on as before when at last they approached the carroll property stacy looked about him more attentively with a wistful sense of what was past such as one might feel in reading over old letters full of youthful affection to someone all but forgotten now the house three miles distant from the town was low and rambling with deep verandas and numerous sleeping porches it sat on a knoll among ten acres of sloping lawn and perhaps ninety of oak and pine woods and from its veranda one looked away west for miles up a narrowing valley between tree-clad mountains valley ridge stacy remembered half humorously half painfully julie had tried to call the place in her boarding-school days 
and had come down one Christmas vacation with heavy blue stationery embossed in silver with that legend at which their father had remarked that if she ever used any of that Princess Alice abomination, he'd get some pink paper for himself, have the pigsty engraved for a heading, and write letters on it to the principal of Julie's school. It was odd, Stacy thought, that the recollection of this trivial incident should remain in his mind as something touching, more touching than the memory of really emotional events, his mother's death, for instance. How things clung, the absurdest things! One could never get rid of them. They were like tattered cobwebs in corners. But they had reached the end of the driveway by now, and Stacy sprang out. After supper he sat, huddled in an overcoat, on the wide front veranda of the house. The low mountains, only a mile to the north, were hazy blue in the twilight. Later the moon rose, and soft brightness spread over everything. Straight ahead the narrow valley took on shimmering pearly tints, range after luminous range of mountains intersecting its sides, like filmy theatre drops in a stage setting. In the midst of this pale silence a sense of reposefulness came over Stacy. It did not spring from any achieved harmony. He had harmonized nothing. He had, as he was perfectly aware, merely bolted, and nothing that he had felt was gone. His pain at Phil's death, his compassion for Catherine, his hatred of men, his resentment at this rag of a world, all this and everything was still alive within him, but submerged beneath his isolation. When he thought of men, he still thought of them as greedy beasts of prey, but it was possible for him now, he believed, not to see them and be one of them. At last, when it had grown very late, he went up to the bed Elijah had made for him on a sleeping porch, from which, too, he had the same view of the shining valley, and so fell asleep. And now began for Stacy as solitary a life as that of any medieval hermit. Every morning he went out on Duke for a fifteen or twenty-minute ride over mountain roads and paths, returning splashed with mud and frequently drenched through, for the season was exceptionally rainy. And after the late cold luncheon, which he trained Elijah to leave spread out for him, he would set off again on foot for the woods. The letters that came for him he tossed unopened into the library desk except those from his father and Catherine. Theirs he read, but hastily, and replied to them with an effort. He did not so much mind reading, or even answering Mr. Carroll's, he did so almost mechanically. But Catherine's were different. Matter of fact, and never touching on general ideas, they were yet, in some cool way, intimate, and certainly without the shyness that had always hampered Catherine in talking to Stacy. It was as though in these letters she assumed that he was real, as he felt that she was. And this was painful to him, dragging him back into the world from which he had fled. Writing to her was hard, and he was aware that his letters must be dull. But Catherine did not write often, only once every two or three weeks. Stacy also read a letter from Julie but Julie was a poor correspondent, writing, when positively forced to, in an odd stilted manner quite uncharacteristic of her pleasant self. 
only this one effort came from her. But Stacy would not have minded fifty letters as unreal. The postscript, however, did sound like Julie, and brought Stacy back for a moment to Vernon. How did Irene know where you were when Phil was dying? it demanded. Oh, so it was Irene who had told Julie, and Julie Catherine, that he was at Clearfield. He stared ahead of him, recalling the tragedy, then laid Julie's letter among the others in the desk drawer. A few people called on Stacy, and he was polite enough to them, but he never returned their visits, and soon no one troubled him further. It was a difficult matter to drive out from town through all that mud. When, rarely, he did talk with people, he received an impression that they were literally very far off. Their voices seemed to reach him from a distance, or deadened as though through a barrier of fog. It was like conversation in a dream. Sometimes on his rides he would get so far away, or be caught in so terrific a storm, that he would stay overnight in some mountaineer's cabin. On these occasions he was welcomed with a grave courtesy unmarred by apologies for what his hosts had to offer. The cabin invariably had but one room and a lean-to. Supper over, the women would go to bed, while the master of the house and Stacy smoked their pipes outside. Then the two of them would enter, undress in the dark, and lie down. It did not irk Stacy to be with these people. They seemed apathetic and emotionless, and their eyes had an abstracted look. On the other hand, if human feeling had faded in him, his long-neglected fancy was waking to new life. His mind grew, like an enchanted wood, into a tangle of imaginings that gave him sometimes a feeling of release, a lifting sense of delight. Similes fitted through it rapidly. A cloud shadow on a blue mountain was like a veil flung across the face of a goddess, heightening her loveliness. The sudden sound of a brook in the forest was like shy laughter. What was laughter? Something delicately unhuman, perhaps, an expression of the youthful buoyant relation between Earth's creatures and the Earth. Biologists said that animals could not laugh. Idiotic! It was only animals and children that could laugh. A dog laughed. Even Duke could laugh. It was true that cats could not, but this was because they were not primitive animals, but civilized. Men did not laugh. They smirked, or, or, ricane. Stacy could not think of the English word, and indolently did not try to. He noted with calm contempt this revival of fancifulness in himself, saying that he had reverted to the sentimentalism of his early life for all along he was contemptuous of himself for his surrender. Further than this he would not look. He avoided himself as persistently as he avoided others. Yet, in his reading, he did not turn to poetry and romance. He read Tolstoy, Samuel Butler, and Thomas Hardy. He cared, in fact, for no books that did not treat solely and squarely of men's relations to one another. He would have nothing to do with men, he would read of nothing else. Months passed, with Stacy scarcely aware of their smooth succession. He was like a man asleep, vaguely dreaming. But it was only a sleep, 
a semi-conscious state into which one sinks, however pleasantly, when tired. Even in those moments when his fancy played delightedly over some sudden glimpse of beauty, he was at bottom dissatisfied, like a man struggling achingly in a dream to unfold and make real the unsubstantial vision of his mistress. By this time April had come. The Judas trees had burned themselves out. The fresh pale green of oaks and maples shimmered against the dark green of the pines. The forests were white with dogwood blossom, and on the lower mountain slopes masses of flame azalea made the ground beneath the trees appear on fire. Much of Stacy's present calm came through his freedom from men, but much too from the silent satisfaction of his starved sense of beauty. He read less now, and went on longer rides. But his calm was insecure. Something impetuous fluttered within him, too strong for this life of fancy. Mentally he was still isolated, physically he was restless, stirred tumultuously by the spring, called to union with the warm, thrilling life all about him. End of chapter 17